If you've got your Bibles open, keep them open um, at Hebrews. And um, yeah, it was interesting, Tim praying to forget certain words. Um, As I was preparing and writing this, I felt there's so much in this passage and over this series that we're going to have in Hebrews, um, there will be chunks that we'll read and then focusing on specific verses. And so actually today, just to uh, make sure you're just feeling, oh my gosh, when's he going to stop? I'm just looking at the opening three verses. You think, really? There's quite a lot to, to cover in those 14. But the, the majority of what we'll look at today is in those opening verses. And then next week, as we look at chapter 2, which also picks up on angels, we'll look back at some of the other verses in 5 to 14. But I don't know whether you've engaged with the letter of Hebrews before, whether you've read it, or um, what things stand out to you if you have. But one of those strap lines that I'd give you to um, keep thinking about as we come to this series is quite simply we fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus, who is God's Son and our priest. And that's a repetitive theme that comes out. We'll see it in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 12. Fix your eyes, fix your hearts on him. And if we're honest, I think each of us, particularly at this time, need encouragement. It takes hard work, doesn't it, to keep walking with the Lord, to carve out time for God in our personal lives. It's our confidence can be knocked, can't it, when friends seem disinterested in our faith or just actually overtly don't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. Our trust is shaken when circumstances are difficult and we're going through hard times that seem out of our control. Our certainty about Jesus' uniqueness, that well, that can be eroded, can't it? Whether it's by fear of being called intolerant, whether it's just the sort of general political correctness that's out in our society, which means, you know, religious differences need to be toned right down. We're all on the same page. And then there's just the practicality of getting out of bed on a Sunday morning for church, which all of you have done, which is amazing. So you can give yourselves a round of applause. But as we come out of pandemic, where everything's online, it's easier to do that way, isn't it? And so our comfort starts to take priority. And meeting together as Christians seems harder to do, just more time, more energy, more effort. Interestingly, the Hebrew Christians struggled with the same issue of meeting together. And the internet, YouTube, uh, Zoom wasn't even on their agenda at that point. So we face similar challenges. And so the next few months as we go through Hebrews, I'm hoping that this letter, which is actually an exhortation, it's a sermon, it calls itself, the writer says in chapter 13, 22, it's, it's a short exhortation in his mind, written by a pastor who we're not sure who it is. It's anonymous. It, is it Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila maybe? Different scholars have argued different things. But this pastor cares about this uh, congregation, this church, that seemed to be largely from a Jewish background, who were Greek speakers, probably living in Rome around the middle of 60 AD, just before um, 70 AD and the catastrophic events of the temple destruction in Jerusalem by the Romans. They'd come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed king, their saviour, and had been growing in their faith during tough times. Again, we see a hint of that in chapter 10. And yet, things weren't going well. Things were getting harder, whether that's because of persecution, opposition. 
the fellowship seemed to be coming distracted, becoming despondent, drifting slowly away from Christ. And perhaps that familiar religion, the sort of temple worship, the animal sacrifices, what was going on there, what, where they had come from, felt more comfortable. And certainly it was politically safer than being identified with this strange movement that followed Yeshua, the Christ, the Son of God. They were no longer convinced deep down that Jesus is better. And yes, we're in a very different context here in 2021, but this is a letter for us, God's word for us. And coming out of a global pandemic, rebuilding our fellowship as a church, finding life again, as God has called us to be his ambassadors where he's placed us. We need God's encouragement, don't we? We need a fresh, renewed word, the same word but applied, to rubbed into our hearts so that we can keep growing in our love for Jesus. And yet, and yet there's this drift. We can feel the pull. We can feel uh, just the comfort blanket around us and uh, maybe he's not as good. And this simple exhortation that the pastor gives us here is, see Jesus as he truly is. See Jesus as he really is. The bigger picture of him. Fix your eyes, your hearts on him. Almost let him overwhelm you and swallow you up with his glory. And as the letter shows us, we'll start to see how the writer, the pastor, takes us through that by saying Jesus really is superior to the angels, to Moses, to Aaron, to Joshua, to Sabbath rest, to the temple worship system. As the scholar Michael Kruger put it, there is nothing grander, greater, more beautiful, more wonderful, more satisfying, more extraordinary than him. And uh, Frank's just helpfully put up in a nutshell this little very simple outline there are others that go into more detail, which in our life groups you'll get to um, play with and have a look at. But here's just three points. Jesus, God's son, he's supreme. That takes us from chapter one to chapter four. Jesus, our priest, he is sufficient for bringing us to God. Chapters four to ten, look at that. And then our response, in chapters nine to thirteen, is quite simply stick with him. Well, if you want a bit of homework as well, Nine minutes watching the Bible Project on YouTube and their video on Hebrews will give you a really good handle on this. It's well worth doing and keep coming back to. I, I, I'm watching it regularly just to make sure I'm on track. But it's a great little piece of animation and a really helpful way to dig into the letter. So as we start, that was a bit of intro and context to the book. I want us to see in these first few verses a very clear, very straightforward headline. God speaks. God speaks then. God speaks now. And we're told how God speaks. In the University of California, in 2009, they published a report which suggested the average American consumes 34 gigabytes of content and 100,000 words of information in a single day. That's a lot, isn't it? Putting it in context, uh, Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace is a mere 460,000 words long. Now, 
it doesn't mean that we're reading those words carefully, but this is what's going through in our everyday life. They're passing by in a single 24-hour period. Now, jumping forward 10 years, and Frank, if you can flick on the PowerPoint, there's some of the data here. 10 years on, another piece of research was done, so 2019, that showed 500 million tweets are sent every day. 65 billion messages on WhatsApp are sent every day. 320 billion emails sent every day. And by 2025, it's estimated that 463 exabytes of data will be created each day globally. That's the equivalent of 212,765,950,700 DVDs per day. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? Just the sheer amount of information and data. How much of that? is cats playing pianos as well. But there we go. It's, they're mind-blowing figures. And when you think, just think about this past week, the information, the messages, the conversations, the instructions, the things you've listened to, the things you've filtered, the things you've responded to in the past week, well, you'd be forgiven for feeling a little bit tired just doing that right now in the seats. But what words have changed you this week? Surely some words are more relevant than others, aren't they? They're more powerful, they're more memorable. Uh, getting that piece of good news, whether it's a clean bill of health, the, the new job, the safe arrival of a baby, hearing someone say they're sorry or telling you that they love you, well, these things really stick deeply. And then sadly, we also remember the, the words that destroy, that hurt, that break relationships. See, each one of us are shaped by the words we hear or read. And that's why in these opening verses of chapter 1, verses here, verses 1 to 4, they're so fundamental for us, so fundamental, whether we would say we're committed believers or searching skeptics, they are foundational words because quite simply they tell us God speaks to us. In an ocean of information, there's a living word from the living God that we need to hear. Just look at those verses again. Verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Don't become complacent about that sheer miracle summed up in those two words, God spoke. The rock-solid foundation of Christianity is that God lovingly communicates with us because we were created to know him. Now, the pastor writing this letter tackles two common misunderstandings about God, which would have been just as commonplace in the middle of the first century as they are today in 2021. The first is that God is silent. He doesn't speak at all. If God's out there, then no one can really be sure what he's like. And then the second, the opposite view, that God speaks through everything and anything, whether it's nature, personal experiences, religious experiences, whether it's individual spirituality, whatever it is, anything goes and everything is open to being God's word, you just decide. But standing in the river of historic biblical witness, biblical truth, the pastor to the Hebrew Christians here makes it clear that from the very beginning of creation, God has been speaking with his son, who is Jesus. And we see that it's not there explicitly in those verses in chapter 1, but when you skip down to chapter 2, 
and verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 1. You see there he is speaking of Jesus, Yeshua, the Savior. That is the Son, bringing the entire cosmos into experience by his word. In Genesis 1, those words describing God calling out things that which did not exist, let there be light. Genesis 1, verse 3. I remember watching the renowned Manchester Uni physicist and scientist, Professor Brian Cox on TV. He is brilliant. And just being struck by the poetic way, he described the beginning of everything as light breathed life into the universe. Light breathed life into the universe. I was like, amen, Brian. Light brings life. And you know what? The Bible introduces us to the light giver so that we can enjoy science even more. God didn't stop there, though. In the era that is captured in the entire Old Testament, God continued to reveal himself and his purpose for humanity in ways people could understand. So the pastor here wants to say, here's the first way, with our forefathers. That is, the line of people whom God called and they followed him our ancestors in the faith. And it's that heritage line that the pastor then focuses on later in the book in chapter 11, and we'll get there to cover it. It goes back to Adam and Eve and their rebellion, to Abel. It includes people like Noah and Abraham and Sarah, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Miriam, Deborah, Samuel, right through to Esther and Nehemiah. It even includes people like Rahab a woman who wasn't Jewish but brought into God's family, into Israel, as they entered the promised land because she, like many others, believed that the Lord God was the one true God she needed to worship. And then we're told it's not just through the forefathers, it's through the prophets, all those who spoke God's word from Moses to Elijah to Isaiah to Malachi. They were mouthpieces, verbal bridges between God and people. And through their speech, their writing, even their actions. We read some pretty cool stuff that Ezekiel did with clay models and having to lay on his side for 390 days as signs of judgment against God's people. But God's word therefore came in different forms, in various ways. Dreams, prophecies, visions, miracles, songs, angelic appearances, on tablets of stone, even a finger on a wall of a pagan king in Babylonia during his banquet covering a time span of 15 centuries, all with one purpose. And this is how the Lord summed up that purpose with Moses in Deuteronomy 5. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. To be in love with the Lord, to do what he says, that they would be blessed by him. And God, by his spirit, continues to speak through those written words today. Throughout Hebrews, the pastor, and we'll see this over the weeks, quotes extensively from the Old Testament. And particularly, we see that here in verses 5 to 14, he's quoting here a lot from the Psalms, uh, a quote from Deuteronomy. So he's using the Old Testament to teach us. And he attributes these words written by human authors like David to God. That we see that in chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today you have become my father? Well, it's David who wrote that psalm. 
And yet here the pastor is saying, God spoke that word. Um, we see it again. Jesus. These words are in chapter 2, uh, verse um, 15, uh, 12 and 13, sorry. Those words spoken in the psalm are being uh, accredited to Jesus. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. Again, these words coming from the Lord. And then the same with Isaiah. And we read in chapter 3, verse 7, that the psalm there quoted, Psalm 95, is attributed to the Holy Spirit. And this was Jesus' own view of the Old Testament. He memorized it, he quoted it, and he fulfilled it. You see, the Old Testament is not second class. It's not inferior to the new. It's God's inspired, infallible, and authoritative word for us, and we take it seriously. It's given for our instruction to help us love him more. And I'd encourage you, maybe as we go through this series, just go back over those psalms quoted in your own time. Read them, reflect on them, pray them through. You'll see that there are some differences because the um, writer here, the pastor, was using the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in our English Bibles, we have the Hebrew translation. And you'll see that there are slight differences not that there are errors or it's been changed, but it's translation and, and meaning um, that is being put there, which helps us understand how these people understood God's word for us. But there's progression as God continues to speak. And in verse 2, we see that progression clearly. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. You see, uh, Frank, if you could flick on the slide as well, here's the, the bold declaration here. Jesus is the first and the last word. In the last days, that phrase there is a way of talking about God decisively showing up to save his people, and the claim of the Bible, of the New Testament, is that everything points towards that happening in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, Yeshua, son of Joseph, but son of the Lord God. And the us includes all of us today, as we continue to live in those last days waiting for his return. And as the scholar again, uh, Michael Kruger, who I mentioned earlier, puts it, the last days don't tell us how much time we've got left, but what kind of time we're in. And it's a privileged time to live in because God has given us all we need to hear him, to know him, to enjoy life with him. But it's also a time of action and alertness. It's a time to take heart, uh, to, to heart of what God's word says, to live by it, not to reject it. So let's be clear again. The Old Testament era, era was not an era where there was wrong or obsolete words. It's like a film trilogy that can't stop at part two. No matter how brilliant the first two films were, you need part three to finish the story. There's a cliffhanger. And there's a cliffhanger in the Old Testament too. God promised this Savior King, so who is it going to be? Where are they? And the Old Testament is filled with pictures and symbols, which we'll come back to as we go through the book. This reality of God's promise and how he worked, whether it's the rescue of Noah and his family in the ark that showed God's rescue from judgment, or the growth of Abraham's family from an elderly couple that couldn't have children 
to be a blessing to the nations and bring people to God's family, or the sacrificial system given to Moses, which showed God would deal with our sin and guilt through sacrifice and a need for a mediator. Or the temple, which was a great big sign that we could meet with God, his presence is here, but it just wasn't enough. These things weren't the finished article. The sacrifices had to be repeated. God's family were unfaithful. The temple wasn't the place that we could go and meet. It was destroyed. The human priests weren't trustworthy. That's why God had to speak to us in his son. God's word to us is Jesus himself. Literally, he has spoken to us in son. That's what the text says. Now, the Uni of Manchester estimated that there are 150 to 200 different languages spoken by long-term residents here in Manchester and Greater Manchester. Around 40% of our young people are known to be multilingual. And I know at Grace Church, um, there's a tremendous range of languages. Do, do you just want to shout out your, your mother language, your home tongue? No, people don't. I know we've got, we've got Polish, haven't we, Tim? That's a fantastic one. Anyone else willing to just yell out? Yeah, Romania, brilliant. There, there are a few others coming out as well. It's really hard with face masks, isn't it? You can't shout, you're not meant to shout, or, you know, are you? We don't know. But you keep the masks on. <laughs> but the languages are there. All over. We speak in different languages. God speaks Son. He is God's eternal. He's the perfect self-expression. He's the ultimate revealer of God. Thank you, Frank. Verse 3. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation, imprint of his being. I remember being at the Etihad Stadium back in 2012 and 2014 when City won the league title. The atmosphere was incredible. You know, ticker tape flying off, smoke going off everywhere, blue smoke, fireworks, you name it. Fans on the pitch, then fans off the pitch, team running around like loons. All of that going off. The atmosphere was incredible, apart from the away fans who quickly left. But it was a glorious occasion. You could sense everyone in it, enjoying it. But even our best experiences and our best celebrations whether that's sports or academic achievement, whether that's being part of a great music festival or a memorable family celebration. They're only small tasters, they're only morsels of the glory of God. As Tim Chester put it, a writer who's looked at Hebrews and written some Advent meditations on it, there isn't a gallery or a theater or a mega screen cinema or Olympic stadium large enough and grand enough to showcase God's perfections. We sang about them being seen in in the glory of nature. But in sending Jesus, Tim said, in sending Jesus, God packed all his glory into one person. Well, why is that? Because he is the exact imprint, we're told, of God. Now, this language that the pastor's using is from the ancient world of blacksmithing. He takes this illustration where coins were minted in the ancient world where you had a die that had the image on it, say like Emperor Nero, and then you took your disc of gold or silver, put it on the die and whacked it with a hammer, and boom, you got the imprint. The image of the die would be on the pressed metal, leaving an exact, authentic copy on the coin. 
And in Jesus, we have that exact representation of God, not on a coin, but in human flesh. He isn't a fake ripoff, nor is he a good copy of a picture of the original. He perfectly replicates being the being of the invisible God in his whole life, his words, his thoughts, his character, his actions. His very substance is fully divine and fully human. Nothing is left out. There are no missing pages. It's why the Apostle John, in his intro to his gospel, wrote, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. It's why the Apostle Peter writes, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we were told, when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. He's talking about the incident where he saw the transfiguration of Jesus, saying, this is my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And on the night of his arrest, Jesus assures his closest followers, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's as clear and as bold as that. And there are two other descriptions of Jesus here in verses 3 and 4 that tell why he is the final and complete word of God. Firstly, he's the ultimate ruler. Because he is the eternal son. He is the ultimate ruler. It's the father's pleasure to appoint him as the heir of all things. The whole of the cosmos is his. It's his inheritance. And this is the amazing thing. He shares it with those who believe him. Who will enjoy his kingdom with him. He's also the ultimate ruler because he continues to sustain creation. Which we're enjoying today. It means we don't have to give up in despair when this life is tough, when we're facing challenges that seem beyond us. Because we have an unshakable security. Because Jesus is on the throne. He's not going to lose. He will look after everyone who belongs to him. And this connects with the fact that he is also the ultimate saviour. Verse 3, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In chapters 7, 8, and 9, later in the letter, we'll look into what it means for Jesus to be our priest. The key thing here is that the, the priests in the temple and in the tabernacle, sacrificing animals and offering animals for the sins of the people, well, they had to keep doing that day by day, week by week, year by year. The unique thing here is that Jesus is the priest who gives himself who gave himself to purify our sins. He alone achieved complete, irreversible forgiveness for all who ask for him, of it for, from him. The priests could never take a seat at the temple. Interestingly, we're told Jesus sat down, which is another key detail. It's very important. The priests didn't have a seat in the temple because making sacrifices for sin was always an ongoing work. There was always more to be done. However, Jesus did pay the full price for our sin as we've sung. His death in our place. God's anger taken away. It's over. Jesus' work is done. And so now we're told he sits at the throne of grace. Just pause to think about that. How amazing is it that we have the King of Kings in charge of the whole world 
whom we've rebelled against, whose word we ignore, we rely on our own wisdom, whose generosity we take for granted living in this world that is a gift, but not recognizing the giver. The king who has every right to destroy us is the king who actually willingly becomes our priest, the king who becomes our savior, who gives his life so that we could be brothers and sisters with him. And right now, again, as we sung in that beautiful hymn, Before the Throne of God, Jesus is in the throne room. And he's there with all our names on his heart, in his hands lifted, saying, these are our people, Father. No one forgotten. No one missed. All who have come to him are there. So fix your heart on him. And as we close, this is why what happens in verses 5 to 14 makes so much sense. Because if that is the reality, don't settle for loving angels instead. Why would you settle for anything else, angels or anything, when the sun is superior? We will have a closer look at angels next week because it does come up and I won't be singing Robbie Williams. But perhaps these Jewish Christians were just floating back into, maybe distracted by or fascinated by angelic messengers. They're very important in the Old Testament. Maybe there was a danger of venerating or honoring them in a sort of spiritual way. Paul warned the Colossian Christians of just that and he put it quite bluntly, they're people who do that are puffed up with idle notions and have unspiritual minds. Moving on, Paul, thanks. But there was the clarity. You don't need anything else. And the pastor here proves the superiority of Jesus over angels by using scripture. See that again? He's not, he's not doing anything other than what God has already revealed. Old Testament Greek translation, he gives seven passages, seven key words, it talks of completeness in biblical language, seven passages that speak about four attributes that Jesus has. So in verses four to five, Jesus has a better name than the angels. He is the son. That doesn't mean, let's be clear, when I talk about Jesus as the son, the Bible has it as an image of his kingship, of his entitlement, of his authority. It's not he's inferior. It's not that he, was, he didn't exist at one point. He is eternal. He shares the same divine nature as the Father. But here we have in view the moment when Jesus' status was declared at his baptism, at his resurrection. His sonship is seen in those things. And the angels just don't have that. In verses 6, Jesus is worshipped by the angels. He's the uh, focus of their praises. In verses 8 and 9 and 13, he's the one who rules over the angels. Verses 10 and 12, he creates the angels, so he's more superior. And it's like, this is old news, guys. It's in the scriptures. So the challenge for us, quite simply, as we look over this letter and as we go into chapter 2 next week, over the coming weeks, is not to be distracted from the beauty, the wonder, the joy of seeing Jesus as he truly is. Don't find cheap replacements. Yes, there are plenty of things in this life that can impress us, whether that's spiritual experiences, whether that's working for the next promotion, whether that's our academic success, finding romance, 
getting into the next health fad or planning for retirement. But left unchecked, those things can pull our attention and focus from pursuing what is better, Jesus himself. It's not that those things aren't important, but he is the ruler, the provider over all those aspects of life. He knows what we need. So go to him. To ignore him, to neglect him is foolish, even with those needs. Um, this week, I was listening to a fascinating podcast. I recommend it to you. It's called Undeceptions. It's hosted by a chap called John Dixon. It's brilliant. And he looks at different aspects of life, and the one I was listening to was on outer space, so I find it fascinating. John is interviewing a guy called Colonel um, Jeff Williams, who went to space for the first time 21 years ago, so the year 2000. He was part of the crew that went on the Atlantis uh, space shuttle mission. He's clocked up 30 hours of spacewalk time, has worked on the International Space Station over that time. He knows a heck of a lot about space. He's the go-to man. And Jeff, it was fascinating, described with vivid detail the experience of takeoff on that first shuttle trip. The, the 30 or so years hadn't dulled everything that had happened for him. And this was what was so fascinating. He said, obviously, after the takeoff and you have all those experiences, and there you are in space, weightless, can see the globe, everything, stars beyond you. He said, in space, there was an overwhelming sense of gratitude. An overwhelming sense of gratitude. And as he shared further, he described how he came to faith in Christ in his early 30s. And it seemed clear that all his work, all his expertise in space exploration and developing the space station reinforced his faith, not distracted him from it. He says this, all of it screams of a first cause, an intelligent first cause, and this is God. You see, all those experiences, all that success with NASA only made sense. It only found perspective because Colonel Jeff Williams knows Jesus is better. He is supreme. So can I ask you a question? Who has the superiority in your life? Who has the superiority? Who is number one? Perhaps you can answer that theoretically, and then there's practically, functionally. What does that really look like? And that's what we're going to help each other with over the weeks together as church family. Perhaps this week you could just spend some time rereading those verses, verses 1 to 4, and praying about them, and the aspect of who Jesus is, and saying, make this, no really, I want to know this deeply. Lord, would you rub it into my heart and mind? Even just take the image of Jesus sitting on a throne, the control room of the cosmos, and our names are there. Let that blow you away when you get that stinging email, or work isn't going well, or the assignment just can't be written, you've got writer's block, or your housemates are just really winding you up, or the family just feels like chaos and so many things that are unfixed and broken and you don't know what to do. Take these and say, Jesus, speak to me of who you are. And maybe you're here with questions, wrestling. This sounds nonsense. Brilliant. Bring the questions. Bring it. 
We want to look. You're here for a reason to help us as Christians be sharper. Help me be sharper. Help me go into this truth. But don't be complacent. Don't throw out questions and do nothing about it. Wrestle with God. Ask him to speak to you. And this week, let us all just think prayerfully. How can we help someone else see more of Jesus' glory and grace? And the challenge with that is he says, if you're mine, I'm in you, and people will see me through you. We're the jars of clay with his all-surpassing power shining out. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the Lord who is in control. You are the Lord of grace and goodness. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have spoken the first and final word as our creator, our ruler, our saviour. Please speak to us this week of your saving love, of your unshakable truth, of the eternal hope we have in you. And may we live lives transformed by you to share that reality, that word, with a world that needs you. Amen.